With kilometres of pristine Indian Ocean beaches to its west and the wide and winding Swan River to its south, the town of Claremont in Perth, Western Australia, is perfectly located to enjoy the blue skies and carefree outdoors lifestyle that pampers the people of this modern city for much of the year. But in June 1996, winter was beginning to cast a dark shadow over Claremont. Fear had taken hold. Now another young woman, Jane Rimmer, has gone missing too. Uh, we are looking at uh, possibly two homicides committed by the same person. A serial killer was on the loose, and he'd already struck twice within six months. Between the early hours of January 27 and June 9 of 1996, two young women, Sarah Spears, aged 18, and Jane Rimmer, 23, vanished after a night out with friends in Claremont at the Continental Hotel and Club Bay View. Miss Rimmer's naked body was located in a shallow bush grave on August the 3rd, almost a month after she was last spotted walking away from the Continental. Sarah hadn't been seen since the start of that January Australia Day weekend, and all her mum Carol could do was hope someone knew something. I would just like to appeal to anyone that may have sighted Sarah to come forward and help us. This is episode two of Claremont, the story of the Claremont serial killings, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. The crimes we delve into have remained unsolved for more than two decades. But suddenly, in December 2016, there was a major breakthrough. It's taken 20 years, but police believe they've finally caught the Claremont serial killer. With 50-year-old Bradley Robert Edwards, who has pleaded not guilty to murder, abduction and rape, soon to face trial, justice for the victims' families could be just around the corner. But as you'll discover, the road to this point of the Claremont serial killings case has been very long, full of anger... To be falsely and maliciously accused of such totally bizarre, obscene and vicious allegations of committing murders you know nothing about. Heartache. My wife didn't want to come this morning. Um, she is numb with shock. And she... Excuse me. And confusion. If they've got nothing to charge him, they should just leave him alone. But they won't leave him alone because they think that he's the person who did it and they just want to follow him to see where he goes all the time. When Jane Rimmer, a childcare worker, became the second woman to disappear in Claremont in extremely similar circumstances, the West Australian police knew they needed a dedicated task force. They codenamed it MACRO and put some of the state's most experienced detectives in charge. Numerous lines of inquiries have and are being investigated, said a task force press release on July 18, 1996. A large amount of information has been received by the task force concerning the more obvious lines of inquiry. These include information about people's illegal behaviour and previous conduct. There are aspects which are of interest to investigators that people may not be aware of. People who change their routine around the time of the events 
people who were absent or inordinately late on the nights or mornings in question. Detectives told reporters, for all intents and purposes, the person was most likely living a normal, everyday life. Criminal psychologists at the time, like Tim Watson Munro, agreed. They're really able to uh, mask the dark side of their behaviour and personality quite effectively. So they may hold down jobs, uh, they may be family people. Police asked young women to think hard about a person who may have previously offered them a ride home. Because nothing out of the ordinary had occurred, those women may have thought nothing of it. Remember, the police were saying that no one had seen a struggle or heard a scream in the case of either victim when they disappeared into the night. And adding to the theory that the two women left the area in vehicles they were relaxed about stepping into was the fact that Sarah Spears had definitely rung for a taxi from a Claremont phone box before vanishing at around 2am. And Jane Rimmer may have been looking for a cab when she went missing just after midnight. Police had little option but to focus heavily on cab drivers. It was like a taxi rank at Warwick Police Station this morning, only the cabs were going nowhere except to help police in their hunt for a serial killer. Cabbies had their fingerprints taken and their mouths swabbed for DNA as police tried to eliminate an entire industry from their manhunt. It was a confronting and controversial time for Perth's taxi drivers as former Taxi Industry Council Chairman Howard Croxon explains. It ultimately got to the stage where it had built up to be so powerful that the industry had had stepped back and we took the view that we needed to go to the sit down with the police and talk about ways that we could at least give them uh, the chance to um, quarantine or or eliminate a large part of the industry. Uh, The police um, that we were working with in those days were were incredible people. They were, they had their their mind, they weren't, um, they weren't accusing anybody, they were just saying how do we deal with this? It was a big issue. Because obviously the the problem for the industry was um Confidence, consumer confidence, and exactly. then you had to help yourself out of that as yeah. well. I mean, well, the, the the position. I mean, there were obviously some in the industry that said, "Oh no, no, we're you know we're not going to be involved in that." You know, they're accusing us of things we haven't done. Um, but from an industry point of view, um, it, the, the 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 revenue levels were going down. I mean, the industry was suffering badly uh, as a consequence, and from an obvious situation that they were going to be. Uh, you know, people were just nervous about getting into a taxi and this, the hype that had been built around it, was that's how it happened. Um, so I guess really we had two things to worry about. One was trying to work with the police to see if we could help them solve the, the, the crime as such and the other is to um, clear the taxi industry's name and um, let us get back on with the job. Was it easy to convince a lot of taxi drivers to go and do this, to go and give their fingerprints, to go and talk to the police, or was it difficult? When you think about it, it was pretty easy. Mm. I mean, there were, I think, something like four or 5,000, might have been more. Uh, there was a big number of taxi licensed taxi drivers, and some weren't even in the industry, but they had taxi licences. And every one of them, uh, I think there was possibly eight from memory, I'm stretching my memory a lot. But a handful, yeah. only a handful. Yeah, but it was, yeah, it was not, not, no more than 10, I would imagine, that didn't get tested at that Warwick police station on that Easter weekend. Uh, and I think four of those had gone missing, you know, just yep. 
probably travelled overseas or somewhere, and there was a, a, and I'm guessing now, but speculating, but I think it was about four that said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, and, and for whatever reason. For whatever reason. All right, but but there was also, of course, this this view in the background. Well, okay, maybe it's not a taxi driver as such. Maybe it's not a registered, licensed taxi. It's a fake one. How how could you deal with that? Well, um, that and that was a very difficult problem because there was uh, it, uh, several in the industry had this view that you know were people borrowing licenses, had someone stolen a taxi, um, had someone used a vehicle illegally, or had someone just you know got hold of some decals and put them on a car and and gone out there and turned it into a taxi at night. Um, you most people wouldn't be able to tell. If you had a few drinks, you've come out of a club, you've, you're looking for a taxi or you've called one and yeah, there there yeah. is something that looks like a cab. You wouldn't and, think and twice. Absolutely. And you hail the cab and the cab stops and you, do, you run down, jump in the back seat, and off they go. You don't think about looking to check the driver's um, uh, identification. But in the background to the hunt for a serial killer, there was a line of inquiry police could not ignore. And it was perhaps the reason that many detectives discounted the taxi theory. In February 1995, almost a year before Sarah Spears was taken, a teenager was abducted near Rowe Park in Claremont as she walked home alone late at night from Club Bayview. She was driven away from Goojeri Street in what was reportedly a light-coloured panel van and raped in Karakata Cemetery just a few hundred metres up the road. This could have been the Claremont serial killer's first attack, and there was no taxi involved. 17 at the time she was abducted, the young woman was 19 when the killer's second victim, Jane Rimmer, went missing. She has never been identified, but in displaying great courage, she spoke to the West Australian newspaper soon after Miss Rimmer vanished in June 1996 to warn other women to be on their guard. You're going to hear what she said at the time about leaving Club Bayview on her own so as not to spoil anyone else's fun and the impact that that decision has had on her life. We've used another person to read her words. I knew if I told someone I was going, they'd come with me, so I thought I'd just go home and not make a big drama about it. I didn't even think about the dangers. That changed my life, a snap decision. That's what people don't realise, how much it can change you. He took away my trust in people. I'm harder now. I judge people more quickly. And I'm scared every time I go out, no matter what time of day or night. I realised that unless they found my attacker straight away, the only way they'd catch him would be if he offended again. And I couldn't bear the thought of that happening to someone else. It was really hard when Sarah Spears went missing because I thought, this person is unstoppable. But if it's the same man, why am I here? That's the only reason I think it might not be. It could be different people who know Claremont's an easy target area. It makes you feel sick. I keep thinking that could have been me. I think about how lucky I am. Bradley Robert Edwards has also been charged for the abduction and sexual assault against the Karakata Cemetery victim. Again, he's pleaded not guilty. Apart from the taxi industry, there was also fierce media interest on the town of Claremont generally, and feeling that more than most were the businessmen whose two night spots, the Continental Hotel and the Club Bay View, were now synonymous with the disappearances of Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer. They said very little publicly at the time, 
but privately they were dealing with a crisis, a crisis that was only going to deepen. As gruesome as it might sound, the discovery of Miss Rimmer's body in the fringe southern Perth suburb of Wellard provided police with their first crime scene and best chance to crack the Claremont case. An autopsy revealed the cause of death, but macro task force detectives were keeping that under wraps. They did say the crime scene and style of murder had given police an insight into the killer and put the investigation in, quote, a stronger position. It gives us a lead to follow up, said Task Force Chief Detective Paul Ferguson, two days after Miss Rimmer's remains were located. And he said a chance to get into the mind of the person responsible and eventually put him before the courts. The media was chasing down all the angles after the discovery of Miss Rimmer. One report was headlined, How the Killer Would Feel Now, and it quoted forensic psychology professor Don Thompson from Edith Cowan University. It may be the case that the person would have planned for the body to be found, he said, would have had an expectation that it would be found sooner or later. It definitely would have had an impact, whether it would have resulted in fear, anxiety or a bit of a thrill in that it had escaped detection this long and the police don't appear to be any closer to apprehending him, close quotes. The remainder of 1996 drifted by. The macro task force was snowed under chasing thousands of pieces of information from public tip-offs. None of it provided any breakthroughs, at least not publicly, and despite any clues the detectives gleaned from Miss Rimmer's discarded body and burial site, the investigation appeared to stall. Not unexpectedly, the level of intensity, anxiety and publicity surrounding the disappearance of Sarah Spears and murder of Jane Rimmer was subsiding by March 1997. A patient predator was again preparing to strike. Police would once more be forced to appeal for the public's help as victim number three vanished. Yes, we do link this disappearance to the disappearance of Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer. And the girl or the woman uh, disappeared from the same location in very, very similar circumstances. Kira Glennon, a 27-year-old lawyer, disappeared soon after midnight on March 14. Like Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer a year earlier in 1996, and the young woman abducted and sexually assaulted in the Karakata Cemetery in 1995, Miss Glennon had gone for a night out with friends in Claremont. As was the case with Miss Spears, Kira Glennon had told friends she was going to get a taxi. Evil was lurking after dark in the leafy western suburb, and another family was now at its mercy. Una, um, my wife, didn't want to come this morning. Um, she is numb with shock. She, excuse me. Dennis Glennon was the latest father trying to cope in a horrendous situation. She has asked me to to appeal to the mothers, the wives, the girlfriends, the ladies in the community who may have a son, a husband, a partner, that they notice is doing something different now or did on Saturday morning. And Una says, look, please help her. We were just distraught. And, you know, we just need your help and your prayers. Um, we are... Um, a strong family and I don't cry easily 
but Kira's alive. We believe that. And we are confident that the way she's been brought up, she will fight on. And we are hopeful that she will be found at the stage even. Mr. Glennon, did Kira give any indication of to you or, or your family on how she was going to get home that night? Did she describe to you what she was going to do at all? Una spoke to Kira at about a quarter to five, just before she uh, was to finish work. And uh, we knew that she was going to have um, drinks at work after that. And um, we didn't know that she was going on to the hotel. Uh, but Kira has just come back from traveling the world for a year. She's very resourceful, she's very streetwise. Do you have theories of, of what might have happened? She would have had to have been overpowered in some way? No idea, just no idea. We've thought of everything, but you just drive yourself crazy, and we just don't know. Um, just give me a moment. Kira came back for Denise's wedding, uh, and um, at this stage, uh, life must continue for us, for our family, and for Denise and Ian. And at this stage, we intend to proceed. But we may change our mind on that, and we will um, inform the invited guests if we do. But life must go on. That's what we intend to do. Kira may be there. As television reporter Alison Fan pointed out in her story that night for Channel 7 News, detectives present at Mr Glennon's appeal were wiping tears from their eyes. But the heartbroken father, who had previously watched the parents of Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer suffer through this public torment, continued. Only now do I even begin to understand uh, the, the terrible trauma that the parents of Jane and Sarah went through and you know, the degree of empathy that I have with them now is just enormous. And my final comment is that no parent who loves their child, even a child of 28 like here it was, can even begin to comprehend the devastating thing that this is in any family. I, I just would like to conclude and just ask all people who are in the Claremont area no matter how trivial it was, to please come forward. And those that cannot come forward, just pray. We need your help. Thank you. The Macro Task Force was now searching for two missing women feared dead and investigating the abduction and murder of a third. Lead detective Paul Ferguson told Seven News presenter Susanna Carr that piecing together Kira Glennon's movements on March 14 and 15 was vital and getting the most out of Macro's manpower to catch the serial killer was critical. Kira came out of the uh, corner door of the Continental Hotel. She walked down towards Stirling Highway and was near uh, Bellissimo's restaurant there. Do you think that she was uh, perhaps heading towards Stirling Highway? Well, she was certain, certainly heading in that direction, but we have no information at this stage where she actually reached Stirling Highway. So obviously people who were driving along Stirling Highway or anywhere down that direction now, you really want them to call Crime oh, Stoppers? Certainly do, yes. Now, this must be a tremendous strain on you and all the officers involved in this investigation. Oh yes, it, it's a strain. In actual fact, it, it's more of a strain on my workload. Uh, we've made a decision today that I will step away from the media and, uh, and concentrate more on, on the operational matters.
Less than three weeks later came the development in the Glennon case that no one wanted to hear. It's April the 3rd, 1997. Just before 11 o'clock this morning, police converged on this new crime scene north of Perth. A short time later, they visited Kira's parents. Police now had a second body, a second crime scene. Miss Glennon was dumped under the branches of native acacia bushes about 50 metres parallel to Pippadini Road, which is 50 kilometres north of Perth's central business district in a sparsely populated area known as Eglinton. She was semi-clothed and spotted by a 24-year-old man walking through the sandy, scrubby area. When Macro Task Force Police descended on this area, they took with them a new weapon in their fight to find the serial killer who was behind this murder, the disappearance of Sarah Spears and the death of Jane Rimmer. An FBI criminal behaviour consultant named Captain David Caldwell was now part of the widening investigation. His involvement had been funded by the law firm where Ms Glennon worked before going missing in March. He publicly said the three abductions were the work of one man and that he might shift his hunting ground away from Claremont because the third strike would undoubtedly change attitudes of young women in the area. There would, he said, have to be an awfully good reason for him not to do it again. Months pass without another case unfolding, but in the background, the macro task force was hot on the heels of a suspect. And on Wednesday, April 8, 1998, the West Australian newspaper's chief crime reporter, Luke Morfess, splashes with a front-page story. Serial killer force strikes, screamed the headline. He reveals that Macro has been running a covert surveillance operation on a public servant for some months and that the man had been recently arrested and questioned by heavily armed police as he drove his car in the early hours of the morning in Claremont. A media frenzy ensues and the commander of the task force at that time, Detective Inspector Dave Caporn, responds publicly with a written statement. The Macro Task Force has conducted an operation over the weekend which has involved the search of several premises and the interview of a significant person of interest, the statement reads. It goes on. The person of interest was identified and evolved through investigative processes employed by the task force. He has not been charged, his status remains unchanged and inquiries are continuing. I am concerned, he said, about some of the disclosures in a newspaper report which involved statements regarding covert operations and practices alleged to have been conducted by the Macro Task Force, close quote. But reporters soon discovered the public servant's identity, the curious life and personality of Lance Kenneth Williams, aged 41, would soon change forever. Sorry, questions. Are you the serial killer? No. Are you innocent? Yes. How has this surveillance affected you? Um, it's been very distressing on me and my family. Yeah. And how does it make you feel? How long have you been aware that you've been followed? Um, since about oh, April. Yeah. Lance, it appears now that you failed the polygraph test. Can you tell us why? Um, well, that was a very disturbing thing to me because I'm the one that suggested I take that test initially because I'd heard that other people had, other people they were investigating um, had taken it last year. And um, 
you know, I had no reason not to take it. And I, I at the time, didn't realise it was um, brought from over in the United States. And um, so I said, well, why haven't you um, given me the test, you know? And then they explained it was brought over from the United States. And um, I, I thought I'd just get some advice about, you know, what to do about it. And the lawyer says, oh, no, something might go wrong. So um, I sort of left it at that. And um, But then I decided, well, you know, the surveillance was going on for so long and um, um, I had nothing to hide, so you know, I thought I'd just go and do it. Yeah. So Lance, originally you refused the test? Um, no, I, I brought it up. They, they never um, even suggested it to me. So until this recent weekend, you yeah. were never asked to do the polygraph test? Um, they had um, given me... Well, after I sort of um, said to them that I'd heard about it. Um, I just said, well, um, initially, why hadn't they given it to me? And then they explained, well, the, you know, the people came in and said, um, you know, it's brought over from um, United States. And um, then I said, I'd just like to get some advice about it, you know? Lance, the thing that, uh, that I think people, I guess, don't understand is, why were you following women around Claremont in your car? Um, I just went um, coming home from Claremont, you know, um, as I do quite often. And um, and when I saw um, a lady approaching the car saying, oh, where are the um, buses and that? I thought, well, that's, you know, um, I said, by that time of night, there's no buses. And um, and then I just took her down a couple of kilometres to, um, to near where she lived, and that was it. Um, I, I never had any intention at all on any other occasions when I saw women walking in that area. Um, I, all I had was concern, you know, that there was women walking around uh, Claremont um, on their own uh, late at night, especially from what had happened all the years before, you know, um, on the couple of years before. Lance, I'll ask you again because it's what everyone will want to know. Yeah. Are you the serial killer? No, I'm not. No. I mean, I. I, I went in voluntary to do a test um, at the police station. I mean, I, I was under no obligation to. Um, I just wanted to, because the police were parked over across from my parents' house and on weekends and, um, you know, sort of waiting for me at work and that, um, I just thought, well, I'll just go in there, do the test, and because um, I had nothing to hide, you know. And what now for you, Lance? How has this affected your life? Well, it's been very distressing, you know, um, and especially um, I, I actually went back to my parents because, you know, I needed some sort of, I don't know, company um, over this time and um, it's just been very, I don't know, um, well, it's not easy. It's good when I get into my normal routine of work and that because I can sort of just do my work and um, do the job I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. and. Um, but, you know, I know that's not been easy for my parents, uh, and I've just, um, just... What would you like to say to police, Lance? Well, as I've said before, I know they've got a difficult job to do. I've said this directly to um, the people in charge, you know, of the investigation there, and um, um, I'll, if I could do anything um, myself, somehow, you know, to help, um, I would, but, you know, I mean, Obviously they've got a job to do and um, it's just they've got to follow up any leads I guess or any um, 
any activity which might be um, in, in, in any way, I guess, somehow resembling what might have happened um, to, to the young ladies that um, went missing and, you know. Finally, Lance, why did you detail your car around the time one of the girls was murdered? A coincidence? What's the reason? Um, no, there's no nothing there. I think that's slightly out of perspective, you know, because um, I, I actually bought my vehicle and I picked it up um, after the first um, episode that happened in Claremont and someone said they found some sort of a, I don't know, um, detailing slip. Um, I had my car detailed as part of a, a um, what they call sort of like a discount on my purchase price. Um, that's the only detailing I've ever had done. Um, and and that was done before I even um, picked my car up, which was actually after um, the time um, of the first incident in Claremont. So that was just bad timing? Well, um, I've got all the records at home. Um, I've, I've got the dockets at home um, to say when I got my car. Um, you know, I even went back to Skibbers to verify I um, had my car on a certain day and it was all there, exactly as um, I have at home, you know, which was after, which was the 30th of um, January. As I'm only speaking because you've approached me, I mean, it's all been a bit distressing, you know, just to have all these phone calls and people turn up at work and, you know. I've, I've told you all these things, yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't really, I don't really, I don't... So I mean, I didn't bring all this no, about. I mean, no. It's that Lance, how old are you? Uh, Forty-one. Forty-one. Lance, do you have a wife and children of your own, or no, no. you don't? Right. The other, the other thing is, you you do live you have with a lawyer. You... Sorry. Do you have a lawyer? Um, well, I, I initially um, got some advice about um, you know doing um, an interview and a polygraph, you know, with the uh, lawyer. Um, that was quite a while back. And the you advice, know. and you said you, you, you said you went against the advice that you did it voluntarily, and uh... well, he he said with the polygraph, it's up to me. Um, and I mean, because I had nothing to hide, um, I just went ahead. Um, you know, after some time, because basically, you know, it was it was something there that they said was a good. They used the words um, that it was a good tool to. Eliminate you know, himself. eliminate people and that. The thing I don't understand, Lance, is that originally we were led to believe, and I can't remember if it was said explicitly or not, was that um, that you had refused to do the polygraph. I just want to be clear on the fact that you say you've never refused to do the polygraph. Um, well, sorry, if you could just look at me now, because my camera. The, the right, the right thing about it, the way it started was, um, I I actually brought it up in the first place. You know, no one said to me, oh look, um, we've had we've had polygraph tests done. Um, a year ago on 53 or whatever, 54 people and um, no one sort of said, asked me did I want to do it, I just brought it up myself. So and police didn't approach you initially? Um, initially no, no initially I, I um, brought it up. What were your alibis for the nights of the, of the disappearance of the three girls? What were you doing on those nights? What did you tell police you were doing? Well, the first time I didn't even have a car so that was... Um, you know, basically the first um, thing I was trying to um, tell them, you know, because um, I didn't... Uh, well, they must have been talking to people at my unit, at where I live, the units, because um, they said oh, I had access to a car, but I mean, my mother used to come around and we used to get, have driving lessons 
So that could be the other car they saw, but that was um, always locked, or always in, in the garage at their place. Um, do you remember what you were doing the night each girl disappeared? What were you actually doing on the night, the dates the girls disappeared? Um, well, on, on Fridays, um, I would have just come home, um, and what I used to do was mainly just cook dinner, and um, well, I used to go to the, have a bit of a swim, then I'd cook dinner, and um, I would usually watch uh, TV, because I still at that stage hadn't had a car, you know, um, on uh, January 26, because I didn't get my car till after then. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't have gone anywhere um, that night, because um, um, the only times I used to go out um, before, when I didn't have a car, was when I used to visit, when I used to go gambling, and I, I haven't been gambling for um, over three years now, so I didn't go gambling, because I, I would have had to have catch a bus there, you know. And, and Lance, sorry to hurry you along, it's just mm. we're all in a bit of a hurry. And what about the, the, the night Jane disappeared in June? What were you doing that night? And Kira, do you remember? Was there, was there a memory you could give police of what you were doing? Um, June the 9th. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went out with my parents to um, a Chinese restaurant in Claremont. And the, when Kira disappeared on March? Um, well, I, I was staying with my parents then because I'd, I'd been um, back from... Um, um, I, I'd been away from work and that um, for, for quite a while because, you know, I had a lot of uh, depression and stress and I, I remember I was with my parents um, from about September um, through till oh, the following um, June uh, with them and um, I wasn't starting to go, go anywhere till about April um, because I mean that was just reflected in my um, bank accounts, none of my, I wasn't drawing money out till uh, April, everything was sort of being brought for me and you know because I was basically under the care of my parents. And through the whole episode I mean I've had, um, the only involvement I've had um, in Claremont was um, uh, of an like basically an innocent thing like you know to do with taking someone home who obviously didn't uh, know much about bus timetables and things and um, had I guess there was taxis but um, I, I guess I, I didn't have any um, never really had any um, idea I'd get stopped by the police uh, you did actually you know. pick a girl up in your car um, yeah, after she approached the car and um, wanted to find out about the buses and that. And um, after telling her that there was no buses at that time, because I knew knew the bus timetables, because I used to catch the bus um, regularly because when I didn't have a car. And then um, I just took a couple of kilometres down at Muslim Park and, um, you know, um, there was nothing wrong with doing that. In the next episode of Claremont the Podcast, the laser focus of the Macro Task Force remains on Lance Williams, while his mother comes to his defence, and Seven News reporter Alison Fan recalls the hour she spent in the apartment of the prime suspect as a serial killer remained at large. I've sort of gone away from that real close friendship sort of thing, you know, Were people... Are you alone, is it? Well, I suppose... Yeah, I suppose you'd put me in that category, but I, I do like the company of people. It's not as I shun people.
This podcast was written by me, Gary Adshead, produced by Clarissa Phillips, recorded in the studios of Red Wave Media and made possible by the archived resources of Seven News Perth and the West Australian. Thank you.